morning. If you guys can open up your Bibles and go to Colossians 2, we're going to read through verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let me say a couple things real quick. Um, I want to encourage you, in, even in our technological age, as I was welcomed to this past week, um, paper Bibles are awesome. Okay? Uh, paper Bibles are awesome. Uh, they were an improvement from the original ones. Okay? Uh, and let me, let me just say this, because this is why. Because today we're going to be flipping, like, not in multiple books, but we're going to be looking at from Colossians 1 to Colossians 1.1 1, 1 to 2.15. Like, we're going to be all over inside of that text. Because... Just like when you and I talk, we have a context with everything that we say. And so what Paul is saying in 9 through 15 fits within a context. And we're not going to pay as much attention to what's going, coming ahead, but we're going to pay a lot of attention to what Paul has said already in verses 1, 1 through 2, 8. So I just want to encourage you, uh, if you don't have your paper Bible with you this morning, let me encourage you to continue to bring that uh, and let your electronic Bible uh, supplement the word, this, this one, okay? All right. The next thing I want to say is that um, thank you all uh, for uh, letting uh, me not preach next week. Um, and uh, I thank Rusty for filling in for me. On Thursday, I said, dude, it's all you, brother. I'm on my way to the hospital. So I'm uh, not going to be preaching this Sunday. Uh, and uh, I just want to say thank you guys for your warm gifts and the meals that you guys have prepared for us and, and the gifts. And it's, it's just, um, I'm privileged to be your guys' pastor. And I know my wife feels the same way. So thank you guys so much. Um, our son is a blessing. Uh, to us, uh, I pray that God uses him to be a blessing to this world someday. Uh, and um, so, anyways, the third thing that I wanted to say is that I'm going to try from now on to keep my introductions much shorter because uh, I've been watching my timing on introductions and they can sometimes be upwards of f 10 minutes. Uh, and so, I'm going to try and s s cut that down a little bit. So we're going to jump right in with Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Let me say this one very last thing. Uh, I hope we can make it through this, okay? Uh, I'm preaching on more than two or three verses this morning. We're preaching on 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That's seven verses. Um, so we're going to boogie through 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. So, these texts, though, I think is just glorious. It is awesome. We get to talk about some Christology in here, which is always good. Um, so, with that said, let's jump right in. First of all, let me, let me say that serious Christians are often anxious about two related issues. Now, let me define serious Christians. These are people who are actually saved and who are fervently following Christ. If you don't fall, fall into that category, then these issues probably aren't relevant to you. Okay, I'm just, just giving you a heads up. First issue is that anxiety about our failures. So the idea of we do not live up to what perhaps we think that a serious Christian should live up to. Maybe we do not do all the things we think that a Christian should. Maybe we do things that a Christian should not do. You know, there's an honesty about this, I think. Um, and yet a, a real deep frustration. Is anybody with me on that? Yeah? You can just shake your head. Yeah. Um, maybe every effort to be more spiritually minded, every attempt to be more prayerful, every resolution to be more holy, every decision to speak, to act, to love, to think, to give, to serve in a less self-centered way, Every effort seems to disappoint. Um, that's something that I'm anxious about. Second anxiety is about what we might be missing. If you realize the world is much bigger than just us few, I think this really becomes a, a, a big point of anxiety. The question is, is there more to the Christian life that we haven't discovered? This is a question that you ask yourself. It's a question that I ask myself sometimes. And from time to time, you ever meet that Christian that seems to have a level of spiritual experience or godly insight or a God-centered living that is way beyond your Christian life or experience? Anybody here with me on that? Ever met someone that's like, wow, like they must have a direct line to God. So they've got something figured out that I don't have figured out. Um, for me personally, I often look at guys like John Piper and David Platt, and I go, what is it that they got that I don't have? Like, there's just this. I mean, like, John Piper, you know, whether you like his theology or not, you, you look at John Piper and you go, that man hears from God. It's just undeniable. That man hears from God. They seem to have an insight that I might never have. The question comes to mind that are we complete Christians? Am I living fully as a Christian should? Is there a secret that some have discovered but I have missed? And I think this anxiety is real and honest. I think it's something that we have to face. Perhaps it's the conversation of the other person that is more spiritual than yours. Perhaps it's their evangelistic zeal. Perhaps it's their prayers. Maybe their prayers are more faithful than yours. You know, responding rightly to these anxieties I don't think is a simple matter for us. First of all, we have to reflect in order to realize this. And I think the great tragedy in our day, one of many, but in our culture and, and, and even in this room, one of our greatest tragedies is the lack of introspection, 
the lack of looking into our lives with critical, not, not negative necessarily, but critical critiquing eyes to go, where am I struggling at? Where am I doing well at? Where do I need to work on? What do I need to work on? And so for some of us, we don't even spend this time in introspection, so this idea of someone being further along in their walk than I am is really kind of a foreign concept. Um, but we have a lack. So first of all, we have to reflect and realize this. Um, we have to take the time to evaluate. But if we see these realities, so here's, here's where we're getting to. If we see these realities, it would be foolish, first of all, for us to dismiss or suppress them. Okay, that's what our world does with problems. Whatever the problem is, we either dismiss it, ignore it, or we suppress it. We push it down under so we don't have to deal with it. Or to cope by pretending that you are something that you are not. Like, that's not the way to handle this. Or some of us may try to overcome it with a smug determinism. Where we arrogantly go at it going, well, I can fix this myself. I've got this down. And that may seem pious and spiritual to us. That may seem the honorable thing to do. But it's not the answer. Some of us may need to be warned of the danger to not shrug off these real concerns. You know, I think this is where most of us are at if I'm if I'm declaring based upon fruit where I think our church is at, I think we try to forget about and pretend that the problem's not there. I think that's the warning for most of us today. But for others of us need to be warned of the danger to seek relief or answer somewhere other than the gospel we have received. And I think this is a real temptation for all of us as well. So we have these issues. Where do we seek, other than Christ, the resolution of these problems? Um, maybe seeking man's affirmations as opposed to God's affirmations. So I'm doing well in my life because so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so said that I look good or that my Christian life looks honorable and that their affirmation is solely that which confirms that I'm in the right place rather than God's affirmation. Now, God can speak through other people, understand that. Maybe trying to build a self-confidence. I mean, we live, this is a conversation I was having with someone the other day, a self-confidence versus a confidence in Christ. That's dangerous. We can also seek resolution to our missing something by imitating the wrong things in those we look up to. Now, you, this is an extreme example, but okay, so John Piper has this direct connection with God. If I just dress the way he does, maybe... I will hear from God, right? Uh, I don't want to dress the way John Piper does, all right? I like jeans and a t-shirt. But if it meant I would hear from God, I would dress like John Piper. Uh, But, you know, we can imitate the wrong things. Let me give you an example. Well, if I just read those books that he reads, then I got it. Hmm. The other way we could seek resolution in what we're missing in our lives We could do so by rationalizing our lacking. We can intellectually rationalize that I'm lacking this aspect of my Christian walk because 
I wasn't uh, brought up the way John Piper was brought up. Or I didn't get the experiences that he got. Or I don't know all the right people that John Piper knew that influenced him. You see where I'm going? We can rationalize. We can rationalize anything, all right? We can rationalize particularly our lacking in our Christian faith. I want to remind you, though, if you look at chapter 2, Rusty preached on 6 and 7 last week. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me remind you, something that Rusty said just still rings out of my head, rings from my head, that rings in my ears, there we go, this walk like the idea here is that you're walking so close behind Jesus that he, his sandals are getting your cloak dirty. Like you're walking so close, paying attention to everything he is saying. You, you're on edge at every word that he speaks. That as he walks, the dirt is being kicked up onto your cloak. So when he says, receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him, so follow so closely, so hard, so attentively after Christ that you don't miss anything. Rooted and built up in him. Similarly, previous to this in chapter 1, verse 23 of Colossians, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul has insisted that his own energies have been directed to one task. And that we see in Colossians 1.28. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why? Why is Paul doing this? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why? Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Because in Christ is the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The call here, and this is kind of gets us into the crux of this, of this passage, the call here is for a careful wisdom to distinguish between being built up in him and being deluded by persuasive speech or being deceived by persuasive speech. This is basically what we're getting at today is there's a call to us to be able to discern, to gain a wisdom, to be able to figure out the difference between following Christ, being filled with him and the knowledge of him and being deceived by persuasive speech. And it's not necessarily a simple matter to tell whether you are, chapter 2, verse 2, whether you are discovering to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, or being, verse 8, captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. The difficulty lies in the fact that the latter is a deception or a delusion. Let me ask you a question. When do you know that you're sleeping? Once you wake up. 
Any of you consciously aware that you're sleeping? Mentally, intellectually aware that you're sleeping while you are sleeping? Anybody? I'm not. But you know once you're awake. Whether your body wakes you up, someone else wakes you up, you're awake. How do you know you're being deceived? Hmm. That's a good question. Because here's, here's the deal. Well, I'm not going to be deceived. Like, I've got this. I'm not going to be deceived. I'm smart. I, I've got this figured out, right? I'm not going to be deceived. Paul, in verse 8, following Rusty's sermon last week, basically issues a very sharp warning. The warning is that now, that warning, sorry, the warning is now supported by teaching about Christ in the verses we're going to talk about today. And that warning was to not be deceived by this teaching. Look at verse 8, Colossians 1 verse 8, or 2 verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And no one takes you captive. Think about that. And we talked about last week. What does Satan want to do? Satan doesn't just want to confuse us. He doesn't just want to give us a bad thought. Like Satan wants to take us captive, even by force. So you don't got this, all right? You don't have it figured out. But let's talk about what is the key to distinguishing persuasive but deceitful ideas, experiences, and or what is the key to that? What's the key? The key is the teachings of Christ and the apostles' teachings and God's word, particularly what we're getting ready to talk about right now. The key to walking in Christ. If you want to write down something, write this down. The key to walking in Christ, to being built in him and being established in the faith, lies in this teaching. The apostles' teaching. Christ's teaching. There is no steps one, two, three, four, five, six, and you won't be deceived by Satan, or you won't be deceived by your flesh. So, with that said, Colossians 2, verse 9 through 15. Here we go. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So it's about in Christ, the whole fullness of God, deity, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. First point. Understand that human tradition is very dangerous. Many of us get deceived because we don't realize the danger. We don't realize the danger. Human traditions, the, basically the teaching of man, anything that's not Christ-centered, 
For Paul, this would have been particularly the teaching of the philosophers. For us, this could be that we believe what we believe because it's our family tradition. So I believe this way because it's what mama said, right? I believe this way because it's what my dad said. I believe this way because it's what my grandma taught me. I believe this way because it's what my denomination believes. Or maybe the world is telling us to be more tolerant. Maybe the world is telling us that there are multiple ways to heaven. This is the teachings of man. Guys, it could even be something so close to the truth, but yet still deceiving. I mean, oftentimes those are the ones that deceive us most quickly. is because they're so close to the truth. Let me give you, there was a, a document released this past week by some denominational leaders and uh, kind of... Well, I'll just leave it at that. And one of the phrases they say in there that they deny, they're talking about their affirmations, what they believe and what they deny. And one of their denials is says that we deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than a response of the person. You're saying, what's wrong with that? <laughs> My point exactly. What's wrong with that? So how to wrong with that phrase? We deny that the decision of faith is an act of God. Wow. Next phrase, and this is just a couple, but we deny that grace negates the necessity of a free response of faith or that it cannot be resisted. Hmm. All right, so let me just, just this little phrase right here, like the first one I agree with. I deny that grace negates the necessity of a free response. So grace does not negate the fact that we have free will. So that's fine. I like that. But then the second part of it, and this is the little partial falseness and deception, is that it can be resistant. So you're telling me that the almighty God who created everything sustains everything, that you and your finite ability can resist the grace of God. Really? It's deception. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, the text we're in today says this. Let's jump right in. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Just look at that four, right there at the very beginning, four. Just keep your hands right there in the text you, you, and we're, gonna just, we're just going right through this. Four connects the whole passage to the previous warning of verse eight. So everything that Paul's getting ready to say is connected to the warnings of not being taken captive. So the question, why is there such a danger in human tradition? that doesn't have Christ at its center. What's the danger of that? And basically what happens is Paul, or the answer to that's gonna be in these next few verses. What is the danger of the tradition to having Christ at its center? And Paul supports the seriousness of this warning in verse eight by pointing out Christ and the truth about him, not focusing on the danger. Now, let me, let me kind of tie this together for us. All right. When we oftentimes go at trying to warn someone of something, we spend most of our time explaining the consequences, right? If you do that, it's going to result in this. 
If you do that, you're going to get a spank. And if you do this, your life's going to fall apart of whatever. But what happens is Paul, it's, it's just, I think it's awesome, but, but Paul, instead of focusing on the danger, Paul focuses on Christ. Right? So Paul focuses on this is what happens in Christ. This is what we get in Christ. This is what Christ has done. So in light of that, knowing this is going to help us avoid the danger, the deception. So instead of giving the deception all these lines of words on a page, he gives all those lines and thoughts and space and real estate of the page to Christ. And that's where we're going to camp out today. It's basically what Paul does. Paul gives us three truths about Christ. So after we understand the danger, he gives us three truths about Christ. And what's going to happen here is Paul's going to give us these three truths very briefly in verses 9 and 10. And he's going to expound upon those in uh, 11 through 15. So, and also let me warn you of this too. The first point is the longest point. Right, so as we're getting close to time to leave, and I haven't gotten to point two, know that point two and point three will, should go a little quicker. All right, first point, God is in Christ fully. This is the first truth. God is in Christ fully. Like, I wish I could make that astonish you. Only the Holy Spirit can open your heart up to see the astonishment of this verse. I mean, this, as my seminary professor, Dr. Ware, would say, this is astonishing. Yeah, right? All right, amen. Astonishing that God is in Christ fully. Verse nine, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This picks up on verse 19 of chapter one, where he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the whole, let me, let me say this, this is a whole theology lesson that we could go down and we don't have time for today. Like what does it mean for Christ, for God to be in Christ and all that? Uh, so, but what, what we're going to look more of is how is this phrase informing us in this context? What is it telling us rather than diving so deeply into that phrase, okay? So this idea that Christ, that God dwells in Christ fully functions here to to remind us of the infinitely important point that if you move away from Christ, you're ultimately being taken away from God. Does that make sense? To move away from Christ is to move away from God. So if all of God dwells in Christ, you move away from Christ, you're moving away from God. So there is no theology apart from Christ. There is no beliefs or doctrines apart from Christ. We, Christ is the center. So here, the enormous claim of the Christian gospel is simply stated. That the God who had once dwelt on Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and subsequently in Jerusalem and the temple was pleased to dwell on Mount Zion and now dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Like, this has become such a cliche concept for us. To think that our God dwells bodily in his son Jesus and fully. Hmm. Let's break this down a little bit further. Verse 9 says, for in him the whole fullness. I mean, this claim is radical. Paul does not, here's the deal, Paul does not leave room for Jesus to be a divine figure. Paul does not leave room that something of divinity was present 
in him. He says, all the fullness of deity means that there is no more of deity to be found elsewhere. You get that? If it all dwells him, there is none that can be found apart from Jesus. Yes, I know. We get into the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and how does all that work? We're not on time for that, right? But we know from here the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. Understand the exclusive nature of that claim. It is not that deity is the kind of thing that we might encounter in various ways, to varying degrees, in various religions, in various spiritualities. The gospel claim is that the whole fullness of deity, all there is to deity, is to be found in Jesus Christ. If you don't want to be deceived, we've got to begin there. And I think that's why Paul begins there. That Christ is God. God is Christ. There is one. Colossians 2.9, going on, it says, Fullness of deity dwells bodily. Speaks of a real, substantial, even tangible and visible presence of God. It's here. When the whole fullness of deity had chosen to be present in this created world in bodily form. You see that? Jesus was here. It's a physical thing. This is what Paul is referring to back in 115 when he says, He is the image of the invisible God. You see that in 15? He's the image of the invisible God. Again, I don't think that Paul's going through all of this because there's some kind of Christological heresy going on. I think that he's saying this because it was true, because it's profound enough to make a statement about it. Does that make sense? Like some things are just profound enough that they don't need a catalyst for us to state them. The fact that God dwelled bodily, fully in Christ is something worth stating, period. It's here at the very beginning that we see clearly that any philosophy or tradition that is not centered on Jesus Christ and fully satisfied with him will be an empty deceit no matter how plausible it may sound. This is why Paul struggles to do what? To proclaim Christ. This is why we must walk in him and be built in him. You see, already from the very beginning, like where it's easy to get deceived, is because that may sound good, it may sound religious, it may even sound like it's what God wants, but if it doesn't have Christ at the center... That's a big warning sign already from the very beginning. So, next point. You have been filled with Christ. So again, this is the second main point that Paul's going to expound upon here in just a few moments. Going on in verse 10, it says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is, here's the deal. Paul is not speaking of a future possibility or an unrealized ideal. That, like Paul's not talking about something that might happen in the future. He's saying this is a reality now. That in him you have been filled. It's done. In the context, Paul seems to be saying that you have been filled with the whole fullness of who? Talk to me. Who? God. 
Look at the context. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells body, and you have been filled in him. Ooh, I thought we just got Jesus. We got God? Let's, 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 let's take a look. Ephesians 3.19. Paul again. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of who? God. How profound. Hmm. Once again, we are reminded why we must take care not to be taken by any ideas that would move us from Christ. That's why, like in this church, and I hope you see it just permeates all of our teaching, that it's all about God, Jesus. Like, it's all about Christ. It's all about what he's doing. All the credit goes to him from salvation to working out our salvation to our glorification to everything else. Like, it's all about Christ, and all the credit goes to him everything. If we move away, we move away from the very thing that fills us. You know, some of us live empty, frustrated lives. It's not because you want Jesus and you don't know what to do. I think you live this life because you're seeking fulfillment everywhere else. Seeking fulfillment Satisfaction of family, jobs, friends, a good life, our kids, morality. Even those things that are good can still be sinful. It's Christ. We are filled with Christ, not filled with a good family. Not filled with a, a good house or life. We are filled with Christ. And then he lives that life out through us. Last point is that Christ is in authority over all. Christ is in authority over all. You say, duh. Yeah, duh, but here's the deal. If he's not in authority over all, then what assurance do we have of the continuation of what the claims that he's making? What assurance do we have that the claims he's making actually happened? Christ is in authority over all. He says in verse 10, in who is the head of all rule and authority? Paul, once again, is picking up on something he said earlier in verse 16. It says, For by him all things are created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. You see this repetition here. Paul is just diving back into what he's already said. I wonder if he was worried about them forgetting it so quickly. Just, Just postulating, right? There's no power or authority that can rival Christ. And we will see more of this, I think, in verse 15. So no human philosophy, no human tradition, no human values, no human insight that is not according to Christ can begin to compare to him. But we live in this world, particularly, like we live in this world of information. It's all around us. Everybody has advice. Everybody has opinions. Everybody has their beliefs. Everybody has their all that, and, and we're just bombarded by that. Whether it's Facebook, or it's Google, or it's people we work with, it's books we read, it's out there. And if it's not centered on Christ, it is at the very best the beginning of deception. So, there is not, these are not simple elements of some philosophy or some theology that's way out there. These are historical realities of the gospel 
Paul says that you've heard. Right? He says this. He reminds me that you've heard of this. What is it that you've heard? That God is in Christ fully. That you have been filled with Christ. And Christ is in authority over all. So what Paul is saying, without letting the cat out of the bag, that these three points is the assurance of avoiding deception. The more we understand these, and the more we are filled in these, the more we understand and are satisfied in these, the more we avoid this deception. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into point two. We're going to take a look at it a little bit. I'm sorry, the part where you've been filled with Christ. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more deep because that's what happens here in the text. So Paul just kind of gave us his three points. And now he's going to expound upon these three points. So, basically what happens is Paul describes the fullness of our experience in Christ and the form of a very timely extended metaphor for our current days of our church. And you will see why here in just a moment. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You know, Sarah is funny. I'll pause right there. Sarah, Sarah says, the, the title of your sermon is really funny. And uh, the title is that we have been circumcised. And... Uh, and, you know, we just got back from the hospital and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, anyway, it's supposed to be funnier than that, but sorry. Um. <laughs> ha ha. Yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Paul says, and then I, I, well, let's just leave it at that. I don't want to get gross. Okay. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Like, this is a sermon in and of itself, but let's go. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, In him, literally meaning in whom, or in Christ here. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions in the book of Colossians. Paul has already given, here's the deal, Paul has already given us a description of what has happened to those who are in Christ. That's already happened in this passage. Now he's going to give us a description of what takes place, in the, or what it means, sorry. He's already given us a description of what, of those, backing up, he's already given us a description of what has happened to those who are in Christ. Now, He's going to get at the heart of what it means to be in Christ. Okay? And the heart of what it means to be in Christ is how we avoid deception, according to Paul in this passage. Does that make sense? What has happened to those who are in Christ, he's already done. Now he's going to talk about what it means to be in Christ. What does that mean? First of all, those in Christ have been circumcised. And all the ladies go, not last time I checked. In him also you were circumcised. Understand, who's Paul addressing here? Primarily Gentiles. I mean, these words would have been strange. Like as strange as if this is all ladies in this group, and I'm going, we have been circumcised. And you're going, yeah, that's weird. No. Very weird, all right? Um, this is talking to Gentiles. 
right? They're going, yeah, not so much. Don't think so. And no, you're not, okay? <laughs> Hands off. Jesus only, right? Okay. That's, that was the deal. Don't change your mind on us, Paul. The Gentiles were known as the uncircumcised. So going on, it says, in him, verse, verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands <clears throat> by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It was a circumcision not accomplished by human action, okay? Let's start with that. I think, and let me give you a side note here. I think this is further support for God's work in salvation. You know, that no credit can belong to man it's all God. This, again, I mean, just like the, the pastor where he, Jesus says you must be born again. Like, who is born again? Who chooses to be born again? But God is the one who regenerates his life. He's born again. God gets all the credit for that. Same thing here. It's a circumcision made without hands. None of us are that talented, right? Paul is using circumcision, though. And this is where we have to understand. Paul is using circumcision as a metaphor for death as a metaphor for death. And this was performed in the putting off the body of flesh. Let me, let me read to you uh, Peter O'Brien, a commentator on Colossians. He said this. He says, Here is a circumcision, circumcision which entailed not the stripping off of a small portion of flesh, but the violent removal of the whole body in death. That's intense. So what, but you say, how does this make it any easier to understand? In what sense have those who are in Christ died? The answer is they have died in the circumcision, circumcision of Christ. Basically, we have died in the death of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So follow me on this. Verse, verse 22 at chapter 1 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his what? His death, by his death. Now using similar language, Paul says that, Christ, that in Christ's death, believers also died. Paul teaches the same truth in Romans 6.6. 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Basically, Christ's death was so, here's the, if you want to write down something, here it is. Basically, Christ's death was so effectively for us that it was our death. His death was so effectively for us that it was our death. He died in our place is so true that when he died, we died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore what? All have died. Hmm. The idea of us dying with Christ has become, I think, a very cliche, very overused, misused cliche today. Like, Jesus, yeah, Jesus died for us. We died with Christ. Yeah, okay, that's cool. I, I think this is what kind of sparks Paul's graphic language or I'm, I'm glad he used, I should say, this stark graphic language. Because for us, with this cliche, 
Like we just can just read over this, the fact that we died with Christ and completely miss the point. Guys, our old life came to an end. Do you know that? Like, do you, your old life died with Christ. Think about that. What are the implications, the ramifications of that? We're no longer enslaved to that former life. We should no longer be taunted by the sin of that former life. We are new creations living a mediocre, reused life. We're living a brand new life. And then he closes with this in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Let's think about this for just a second because I think our culture helps us to very, to very easily misunderstand this passage. The word baptizo, basically baptism, you know, the word we get, we get baptism from the word baptizo. Understand, guys, that baptism is not a translation of baptizo. It's a transliteration of baptizo. So what it means is there was no word for baptism in the English language. So they took the letters, the transliteration, and then made a new word in English. Now this is important because what happens is that when we take the word baptism, oftentimes we take our English ideas of baptism and we use that to understand the word baptism every time it's used in the New Testament. And that's not good. Basically, when we think of baptism, we think of to be immersed in water for the purpose of public proclamation, right? That's what a baptism is. If you're Presbyterian, you might think of sprinkled or such and so, but still, our culture is it's referring to baptism, a public proclamation. But understand that the word baptizo here used has its own Greek meanings independent of any kind of rites or ceremonies. So it has its own meaning. So the word baptism can be translated, immerse, engulf, overwhelm, dip, wash. So with that in mind, I think it's possible and likely that his phrase in 12a here, having been buried with him in baptism, could be conveyed in English as having been buried with him in the overwhelming experience. The overwhelming experience of what? Of his death. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's, let's, go, let's just go that a little bit further with that. Okay. So let's take a look at another spot where the same word is used. Mark 10, verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Do you think Jesus is talking about taking a cup into the Jordan and taking a sip of the water that he just dunked his whole body in? Is that what Jesus is talking about there? What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his sufferings, his death. Hmm. Jesus referred to his death, the baptism with which I am baptized. And I think it would be better, even here we can say the that Jesus is saying to, to be overwhelmed with the experience to which I am about to be overwhelmed with. 
the situation that's them being put in, or going into, I should say. Mark 10, that next verse says, And they said to him, We are able. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You see, what happens here? This is what Paul's talking about in Colossians. Jesus is telling the disciples, and they have no clue. They're saying, yes, we can do that. Whatever you're getting ready to do, we don't know what it is, but we can do it. And Jesus is saying, look, you will be. You will be baptized with me. You will die with me. And then Paul affirms this later on. So 2.12, back in Colossians. The baptism to which Paul refers again is Jesus' death, or possibly the believer's participation in that death. So having, let's read verse 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, having died with him in his overwhelming experience. Does it make sense? This is awesome. So in Christ, believers have shared in his death fully and completely they have been buried with him. Next point. There, those in Christ have been made alive. Those in Christ have been made alive. So after he says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Guys, to be joined with Christ cannot stop at the burial. Why? He was raised from the tomb. And the one who was raised... Him from the dead is the one who also raised you to new life. And we have this new life in our union with Christ. And this union is accomplished how? How is this union accomplished? What's it say in that next verse? It says, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Because we are united to him by faith and we share in this resurrection life. So we're not just dead with him, but we share in his resurrected life. And faith here, let me, let me, let me point this out. Faith really kind of has two parts here. Two parts to faith here. Faith is the means of taking hold of this new life. God uses faith as the means for us to take a hold of this new life in Christ. And then our faith in the working of God animates a whole new life. So it's our faith that God uses and he works through our faith to unite us with Christ and it's our faith in the continual working of God that animates or brings to life this brand new life in which we operate day to day. Think about this. The very faith that unites us to Christ is the same faith that results in a life that is as new and as substantial as the resurrected life of Jesus. Hmm. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, all right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's worth some meditation over, okay? Let me just read it again. I just kind of went, I'm like, I'm just, uh, no, we got to go back to it. The very faith that unites us to Christ is the same faith that results in a life that is as new and as substantial as the resurrected life of 
Jesus. Think about that. I think the wonder of this is seen. And just Paul's writing is so awesome. So let's read verse 12. And we'll see why this is so wonderful. Look. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead, who were sick and in the hospital, who didn't have things quite figured out, you who were dead. And Paul doesn't just leave it there. What Dead what? Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Here's the deal. Paul is not speaking of their having died with Christ right here. Right? And you who were dead. He's not talking about the dying with Christ right here. He is speaking of their condition before coming to faith in Christ. Think about that. Those who have died with Christ were already dead people. And we don't have time to figure all that out, okay? I just want you to point that. There's two senses, though, Paul says, in which we were dead. First of all, in your trespasses. Paul described this in 21. He says, in chapter 1, verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He later says, dead in your trespasses. And then he says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. These were Gentiles. They were literally uncircumcised. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is, these are the people that Paul says now, you've died in Christ. And that you now live and are made alive with him. So, but now... The death of Christ has been the circumcision of these uncircumcised people. And the outcome, going on in verse 13, God made alive together with him. The dead people died with Christ in order that they might be made alive with him. Man. Next, those in Christ have been forgiven. Those, of, those in Christ have been forgiven. And I think this is where we get to the heart of it all. Having forgiven us all our sin. The end of verse 13. The forgiveness of sins is the powerful reality that makes possible deliverance from the domain of darkness and transference to the kingdom of Christ. It's this forgiveness that makes this possible. Of course, there's lots of other aspects to that, but... This is what makes people who were dead come to life. It's what turns alienation into reconciliation. Do not overlook in this too the, the words all, or the word all. Did he forgive some of our sins? He forgave all of our sins. How many of us are haunted by that one sin? Or that two, those two sins. Hmm? Even sins after we've begun following Christ. How many of us are haunted by 
a sin that we maybe did four months ago. He forgave all of them, past, present, future. He forgave them all. It doesn't mean we continue on sinning to the grace may abound. It just means that when we are seeking him and we still screw up, that sin has been forgiven. Also, do not overlook here the pronouns in this passage. He talks about you have been filled in him. You were circumcised. You were also raised with him. Verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses. And then he says, and uh, this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having been forgiven us, or having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's Paul. You Gentiles are now part of us. We are one. That's very important to us, okay? None of us are Jews, at least to my knowledge. This is very important. So all of this, we died with Christ. We were made alive with Christ. We are now forgiven, is what Paul meant when he said, you have been filled in him. When Paul says you have been filled in him, he means we died with him, we're made alive with him, and we are forgiven. So, what are we to do? We're to walk in him, be built in him, to be established in your faith in him. You're to continue in this faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The point now is the completeness of what has been given to us in Christ. The fullness of life is in him. So let me ask you this question. What are you looking for? Christian, what are you looking for? Like in life, what, what's, what is it that you seek after? Happiness, joy, satisfaction, peace, maybe just stability? A place where you don't have to fear? Or what do you seek after? You should be looking for what has been given to you in Christ, in the death of Christ and his resurrection. This is why we must see to it that no one takes us captive away from Christ. Because if we are taken away from Christ, everything else crumbles. So, now we're on to point three and four. And we're going to move through these pretty quickly. Point three is that God is in Christ fully. Verse 14, he says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here is what was accomplished in Christ's death. In verse 19 and 20 of chapter 1, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the purpose was to reconcile all things to him by the blood of the cross. So what happened in Christ's death? What did God do? God canceled the record of debt. God canceled the record of debt. I think what we see here is one of the most vivid descriptions in the New Testament of what happened when Jesus died. So consider this. Consider a document, if you will. A paper document. 
in front of you that lists all of your indebtedness to God. Imagine that piece of paper. Your, all of your indebtedness to God. I would want to hide from that. Like, I would not want to see that. I'm going to run as far at any expense to get away. And the forgiveness of our sins was accomplished by the canceling of that record of dead. I think you could see Paul's Jewishness coming through here. The Jewish people were in covenant with God under the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was therefore a record of debt because what they failed in that covenant miserably. And so that covenant stands as a record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands. Yet, here's the deal. I don't think Paul in this passage is just thinking of the Jewish people. I mean, obviously he's writing to Gentiles. But Paul says what in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all have this record of debt. And Paul says that those who are in Christ, that the debt was canceled. You know what canceled means? Like the literal translation of canceled? Obliterated. The debt no longer exists. Christians, why do you keep bringing it back up? It's been obliterated. How was it obliterated? Right? This is so like, just see this. See the picture. The, the record of debt was nailed to the cross. Envision Christ standing there, our record of debt, plastered to his body, then nailed to the cross, and God's wrath poured out on that document, obliterating the record of our debt. Think about it. It's gone. It was nailed to the cross. He already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, making peace by what? The blood of his his cross. Now all our trespasses were forgiven when the record of debt was obliterated by Jesus being nailed to the cross. Here, I think just under the surface, we see the idea of substitution. The debt was canceled when Jesus died precisely because he paid the debt for us by dying in our place. Last big point. Christ is in authority over all. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I think the pronouns are important to understand who's talking here. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Here, Paul basically concludes his explanation of why his readers must see to it that no one takes them captive. He points to the cosmic scope of what God has done in the death of Christ. 
the largeness of what he has done in the death of Christ. And Paul has made it clear that, that the peace has been made with the rulers and authorities. And I like what one, one commentator said. He used the word pacification. Like they were pacified. That doesn't mean to make happy. That just means there is a temporary pacifier that has happened to the rulers and authorities. Because here's the deal. How many of these rulers and authorities do we see in this earth that are in subject to Christ? How many of them do we see and they're happy about it? None of them are happy about it. One of these days, they will all bow before the throne of God. For now, they are still in subject to him. They're just not happy about it. They've been pacified. Pacified. Christ disarmed all the spiritual power. Now, guys, when we start getting into sin and the accuser and all this, this is where you really need to pay attention. Paul, I think, is probably referring to spiritual powers that were opposed to God. I think it's simply that. But the fact is, is that these powers have been disarmed. How? By the cancellation of the record of debt that stood against us. See this. Satan is obviously the one behind the spiritual powers, right? Everything is evil. Like Satan is behind all of that. Whether he's the one doing it, he's still the mastermind behind it. Satan is the author of this. Satan is what? In Revelation 12.10, he is the accuser. With no accusations that can legitimately be made, Satan and his minions have been stripped of their power against us. Do you see that? Like, like it's not just, okay, I have Jesus now, so Satan shut up. Like, there's actual logic and understanding to it. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's not just, okay, when Satan tries to accuse me, all right, all right, Satan, yeah, leave me alone because I've got Jesus. No, it's Satan, leave me alone. You have nothing to accuse me of because it has been obliterated in Christ on the cross. You move away. See, we're knowing the truth, sets us free. I mean, knowing the, put these things into practice. He disarmed them. Why, because he's a cool dude? No, because the debt was obliterated. Next, those powers have been shamed. More than just disarming them, he put them to shame. By stripping them of their power to accuse, they're exposed, these powers are exposed to the universe in their utter helplessness. They have nothing they can do. Can you see where that would bring shame on them? So if I'm this great power, and all of a sudden all of my power has been stripped from me, I stand there in shame because I have nothing to do. This is Satan and his dominions. God has stripped them of their power. Lastly, God has triumphed over all. All of this accomplished by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. See the irony with me. The rulers and authority most obvious during this time would have been the Romans. They put Jesus to death. 
and had no trouble doing it. He was the one who was stripped naked. He was the one shamefully hung in public. See where Paul's getting at here? The triumph was seemingly theirs. The Romans. Satan. But the triumph one was the one who died. See that? The triumphant one is the one who died. The whole of creation has been pacified by God in the death of Christ. There is no power in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the cross, they were all stripped of their powers. Christ hung shamefully, bore our sins, died, paid the price, rose again triumphantly. Anxious Christian, let me encourage you, don't ignore your concerns about the inadequacies of your Christian life, but look to Christ. Look to Christ. Consider who he is. Consider what he has done. Understand how in him you are filled. See, this is the danger of being deceived. But understand deception is anything that does not have Christ at its center. This is why you must see to that no one takes you captive with anything that takes us from Christ. And deception is anything without Christ at the center. If you're seeking simply to have Christ at the center, how could you be deceived? Like, let's just think about that for just a moment. Christ is the source of everything, and everything you're doing is trying to put him in the center. Now here's the deal. If you do these things, it's not a guaranteed you will never be deceived again. Understand that. But Paul's telling us we keep Christ in the center and we avoid deception. That is the clear point. So follower of Christ... Realize your old life died with Christ. You have been given a new life and now should walk in Him. See your life in light of the glorious one we call Jesus the Christ. Be satisfied in Him fully and you will avoid deception. Christ, again, let me say this in closing. It's not a guaranteed, you seek after Christ, you will never be deceived. Because Satan is good, our flesh is evil. Okay? But the clear call here is to put Christ in the center with everything that we have. The fact is, we're still sinful people. So, let me just encourage you guys. Here's the deal. Seek after Christ. Grow in your knowledge of him. Put that knowledge to use, to work. Use it to encourage other people. Use it to push other people. And here's the deal, and I hope you kind of hear this kind of as an undertone of what we're saying. We don't find satisfaction in ourselves. It's not about what do we get out of any of this. It's not about, it's not about thinking more highly about ourselves. It's not that. It's about thinking highly of Christ. 
about thinking highly of him. It's about understanding him. That's why I love that Paul doesn't spend all this time working through the danger and explaining the danger and what could happen in the danger. Instead, he spends time talking about Jesus. Because Jesus, if we just keep our eyes on Jesus and we get to know Jesus and we stay focused on Jesus, this is what Paul is telling us. Keep your eyes there and avoid deception. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, your word is alive. Father, I just, um, I just ask that you would use that word to move our hearts, but that we would walk out of here with a hunger to know you more, to know your son more, that we would walk out of here evaluating our lives, thinking about where are those areas that are given to human tradition to human philosophies rather than to your word and to your clear revelation of yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to attack everything in our life that is not centered around Christ, whether it's behavior, whether it's thoughts and beliefs, it's emotions. That we rid our lives of those things through the power of your spirit so that, so that we truly are centered on Christ. Father, reveal those areas to us. Father, thank you that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Christ to go all the way to the cross is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. And Father, your goal in making us into the image of your Son, Christ, is the very things we're talking about where our life is so centered on Christ that everything goes through that filter. And Father, I just ask that you bless us. Father, that you would bless us with the working of your Holy Spirit in us. That you'd extend your grace to us. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a, uh, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful day. What?